If you will, turn with me in your, in your Bible to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. If you have your bookmark in there from the book of Malachi, uh, where Bo is in for the sermon series he's doing, just keep flipping. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Romans. We'll be in the book of Romans chapter 8 this morning. And as you're turning there, I want to share how important this text has been to me in my life, in my ministry. You see, Romans 8, along with Romans 5 through 7, has been a bedrock, a cornerstone for me in my faith and for my fight for joy in the Christian life. You know, when I first started in ministry as an intern to Ben Pierce, when I, we were a uh, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, we shared an office together, and it was all desk, a little bit of office. Ben had this giant pirate ship of a desk, and we would talk about life. We would talk about everything in between. We would talk about books of the Bible, and I was talking to him earlier this week, and neither of us can remember what it was that started this conversation. But he, I was struggling with some type of truth, some type of biblical truth, and I, I just wasn't grasping it. And he said, Dave, go home and read Romans 5 through 8. I was 19 at the time. I'm 31 now, and I have not stopped reading Romans 5 through 8. You see, every time I go back to the book of Romans, and specifically those chapters, I find new joys, new loves for my own life to see how beautiful that Christ is and how great that He is to my life. And I have a deeper understanding of God's love for me in Christ. And for the time that we have left this morning, I want to share just a few of those joys, just a few of those cornerstones that has been, has been a bedrock for me in my Christian life, and hopefully you will be encouraged as well. So if you will, stand with me at the reading of God's Word, God's holy, infallible, all-sufficient Word, Romans 8, verses 31 through 39, Paul writes this to the church, and he says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. Father God, Lord, I thank you so much for your mercy and grace. Lord, I thank you that nothing can separate us from your love. And Father, I pray in the next few moments that, Lord, you would help me to show, Lord, just a few of the joys, a few of the cornerstone of truths that you have been kneading into my own heart and my own life. Lord, I need you this morning. Lord, this church doesn't need me. They need you. So, Father, I pray that you would hide me behind the cross and let the words of my heart and the meditations of my mouth be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my God, my rock, and my redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. 
I want to define a term for you because I'm going to use this uh, throughout the message, and that is the term cornerstone. You see, a cornerstone is a concept derived from the first stone set in the construction of a masonry foundation. It's important since all the other stones will be set around in reference to this stone. Thus, it determines the position of the entire structure. So put in the plain English, if that cornerstone is off by a millimeter or a centimeter or an inch, that means your entire structure is off by a millimeter, a centimeter, or an inch. So you don't want a building that is faulty, do you? You wouldn't want to, uh, uh, for this church to be off by just a little bit because then that, the entire structure, the foundation would not be set. It would not be perfect. Well, the same is true in our Christian life. You see, if we don't have a cornerstone set in the gospel of Christ, if we don't have our cornerstone set in the entirety of the Scripture, then we'll be off by an inch. We'll be off by a millimeter. We'll be off by a centimeter. We'll be going towards the way that the wind blows. We will go towards what we think our hearts want to hear. And we won't be in the convictions that is God's Word. And so this morning... I just want to show just a few truths from Romans 8, 31 through 39. But before we even look at those verses, I want to show what those verses are hinged on, what the cornerstone of this chapter is, and that is Romans 8, 1. You see, Romans 8, 1 is the bedrock for all that will come after it. And Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, after that verse, Paul then begins to lay out a beautiful foundation set around that cornerstone, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, that we don't stand guilty, that we don't stand convicted of our sin, but rather we stand free. You see, that is the beautiful nature of the gospel, is that we do not stand condemned, but rather we stand forgiven, that Christ took our place on the cross, that he was despised so that we could be accepted, that he was uh, uh, scorned so that we could find favor, that he was abandoned so that we would never taste that sting of loneliness. You see, the beautiful nature of the gospel is that we trade at places. Martin Luther calls this the great exchange, that we got his position of favor while he got our penalty of condemnation. We got his perfect record. And so all that Paul is saying from this point forward is hinged on that beautiful promise of Romans 8.1 for the believer that there is now no condemnation, no guilty verdict for us in Christ. And what a beautiful cornerstone that is. You see, in Romans 8, there is no command for joy. In fact, if you go home and you read the entirety of Romans 8, you will see that there is no imperative, no command that says do this in the Christian life or do this or do that. And if you don't do this, then you're sorry. No, it is all glorious promises from verse 1 to 39 of what we have in Christ. And that should be the wellspring of joy in our life. Romans 8 should be the cornerstone, the the bedrock, the beauty that that we desperately need. And so in the time we have left this morning, I want to show three truths, three beautiful cornerstones that have meant so much to me in my life. I was sharing this with Bo earlier about just how much this chapter has meant to me. And I pray, my hope is that you will see that as well. First is this, Christ is providing for us. Christ is providing for us. Look back with me at the text, and we'll see that in verses 31 through 32. Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? 
If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, in verses 31 and 32, we see a beautiful promise for the believer. Is that if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can stand against us? If God is for us, church, who can stand against us? Because we serve the God of angel armies. We serve the God who spoke the world into existence. We serve the God whose very word commands authority. And so if that truth is the bedrock of your life, if that truth is what you you sit on, then what can separate you? What can stand against you? If that is the truth of your life, then believer, that means that we walk in victory. That's why Paul says in verse 37, we are more than conquerors through Christ uh, who, who, who loved us. Why, not that anything we did, but rather what Christ did for us. And so let this joy of truth sink into you this morning. Let it get into your heart, into your mind, into your life. Now for those in this room that claim Christ, God is working for us, for our good and His glory. And to drive home this idea, Paul reminds us that God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, God is providing all that we need through his son. God is providing all that we need in the Christian life through the work of Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection. We have all that we need. If that is all that we receive from Christ after that, that is enough, church. If we never received any other blessing, if we never received any other joy, if all we had was the gospel, that is enough. Let me ask you this. Is that enough in your life? Is the truth of the gospel, is the truth of Christ, is that sufficient for you? Or do you need all these other things? Do I need a new boat? Do I need this? Do I need that? Am I going to go on Amazon and, and, and look at all the things that I think that I want, that I think that I need? Trust me, I'm right there with you, okay? Don't, don't, let me, don't think that just because I'm a little higher than you right now, that doesn't mean that I don't go home and look at Amazon and think, oh, I need this. See, I need to tell this to my own heart. I need to remind myself of this truth daily, moment by moment, hour by hour, that Christ is enough. You see, God gives us grace upon grace when we uh, run from him. I like to use this example when I, when I use that term, grace upon grace, and I think I've shared this with some of y'all on Sunday nights. Let's say for a moment that I have a three-year-old up here, and, and for uh, the sake of time, I did not choose to, to do this illustration with a child. But let's say that we have a three-year-old up here, and I give them a jar of peanut butter, a jar of jelly, and two loaves of bread, or two slices of bread, excuse me. How much peanut butter and jelly are you going to get on those bread pieces? This is a time of response and answer. How much, how much is going to get on there? Not very little. That's right. Who said that? Amen. <laughs> Where is all that peanut butter and jelly going to get on? Everything else. That's what God's grace does in our life. When John says in his gospel in John chapter 1, we have all received grace upon grace, that is the beautiful nature of God's grace is that it covers a multitude of sin. God is working for us in that way. He is providing for us for our good and His glory. You know, I've heard some pastors call this, this verse the God is working for us verse. And when I first heard that, I thought, how strange that is, right? 
How strange it is that the God of the universe is working for me. I don't know. Do y'all sit up at night and think about that? Is that what y'all go to sleep at about at night? That's what I do. Like, why is God works for me? But you see, that's the only, uh, only understanding if we think that somehow God needs a job. And it's only belittling to God if we think that he needs a job. You see, that's not how the Bible talks about God working for us. As Isaiah 64, 4 says, God works for those who wait for him. So the proper connotation of saying that God works for me is saying that I am bankrupt and I need a bailout. That I am weak and I need someone who is stronger than I am. That I am endangered and I need a protector. That I am foolish and I need someone who is wiser than I. That I am lost and I need a rescuer. You see, God works for me means that I can't do the work for me. God providing for me means that I can't make the provision for myself. Think about, me, think about it with me like this, with a child, with a little baby. For some of you who've, who've had the joy of holding a baby like that, does that baby provide anything on its own? By no means. By no means. Does that, it, what does that baby do? It, it sleeps, it eats, and it poops, and then it repeats. That child can't do anything on its own. Rather, that child is dependent on the parent to provide everything for it. That's us with God. You see, I'm not some superman. You are not some superman that you can do all things in your strength. Rather, we are the helpless child who needs God to give us all things. That's why he says in the text that if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously give us all things? Think about that this morning. That if God did not spare his own son, but graciously gave us all things in Christ, how can we not be totally, completely relied on God for everything? In your workplace, when you're crunching the numbers, when you're teaching students at school, when you're, when you're plowing the fields, for the, for the parents who stay home and you're working with a child and the child has just done the, the thing that you've told them not to do for the fifth hundredth time, you're like, why? God's gracious is going to give you His grace to handle that situation. You see, we need to rely fully, totally, completely on God's grace that He is working for us for our good and His glory. You see, in America, we'd like to think that we're self-sufficient, that we can do everything on our own. But the Christian life, it flips it all on its head. And it tells us, I am relied solely and completely on Christ. Without Christ, I can do nothing. Without Christ, I am absolutely, horribly lost. And so are you. And so for the believer in this room this morning, let me just ask, are you relying on Christ? Or are you relying on your own strength to do the, do the work that he's called you to do? Christ is providing for us. Secondly, this morning, I want us to see that Christ is also for us. Look back with me at the text. Verses 33 through 35 says this. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? You see, notice the language that Paul is using here in these verses. 
who shall bring any guilty verdict against those who are in Christ. That is what he says there when he says, who is to condemn? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who can bring any guilty verdict? Why? Because Christ was the one who took all things into himself. He took on all of our sin so that we might receive his righteousness, his perfect record. We are justified, meaning that we are made in right standing, not because of anything that we have done, but because all of what Christ did for us at the cross. Meaning this, that there is no good work that you can do to satisfy God. You cannot be a good enough person, church. That is a lie from hell that says that if you just do enough good deeds, then you will make it into heaven. That you will somehow make all of your bad not there anymore. That you will somehow get into the good place. That is a lie. You see, there's nothing good in us. Our hearts are deceptively wicked. We needed someone to take on the verdict, the wrath that we could not do, that we could not handle. And that was Christ. That's why Paul says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Christ Jesus is the one who absorbed all of the wrath of God. He is the one who took it all into himself so that we could then stand free, so that we could stand in grace, so that we could sing what we sung just a few moments ago when Jody was leading us, that I am no longer a slave of fear. Rather, I am a child of God because of what Christ did for me. I now no longer stand guilty in my sin, but rather I stand redeemed. I stand free. Let me tell you something also. His grace never runs out. I told you a minute ago, we have all received grace upon grace. And for some of you in this room right now, you think that you have done the sin that is unforgivable. You feel as if there is a mountain of sin in your life that God can't forgive, that God can't redeem you out of. Let me tell you something. As long as there's breath in your lungs and you can confess with your heart that the Lord Jesus is who he says he is, there is grace and there is forgiveness. Let me share an example out of that. I thought about picking on some of y'all, but then I thought about I'd just pick on myself. Is that okay? Now, before I tell you this story, though, you can't use this against me, okay? So everyone nod your head yes. We're not going to use this against Dave. While, a long time ago, a while ago, I got three consecutive speeding tickets in a row. Three consecutive speeding tickets in a row. That takes talent right there. <laughs> Some of you have greater talent than I. <laughs> but I was, uh, I was uh, still young enough where the first charge, my parents are down here, they're, they're going, yeah, we remember this. The first charge, I was able to just take the class, right? I was able to take the class and then uh, prove that, yes, I know what the speed limit is, okay? But then I, uh, a few weeks later, I did it again. And this time, it was far worse. Uh, Daniel made fun of me earlier this week. He asked to see my license, and he saw my license. See, I'm going to get ahead of it. <laughs> and he has a picture of me when I was 21. And not only on that day did I get a speeding ticket, but I also found out that my license was expired. Someone do the math for me. That's not good when you get pulled over and you're going in the neighborhood that is 20 miles an hour. You're going 35 because you're late for class. That was me. And so, again, my dad graciously and his love and his mercy and his uh, total grace in my life, I'll get a lawyer, son. So he called the lawyer, and the lawyer took care of it. I got a prayer for judgment. He brought the 35 down to uh, something manageable, 25, just a little notch on my 
insurance record. But then I had to go and do it again. And it wasn't my fault. Y'all believe me, right? (laughs) It was a speed trap. (laughs) And I was, it was while I was at Fuquay, Fuquay Baptist, and I was racing home to go get something so I could go back for ministry. It was good. The cop didn't see it that way. (laughs) Benji, you know where it is on James Slaughter. And the cop pulled me over. I was going... Oh, my. Yeah, tell the truth. 60, in the 60s, in a 35-mile-an-hour zone. I, come, I came home crying. My mom remembers that. My dad did what he always does. He came home, too. <laughs> and he said this, son. I've called the lawyer twice. You call him now. And you will pay for this one. So I called a lawyer. <laughs> and I'm not going to embarrass myself by trying to do a thick southern Alabama accent on, but he, that's what he had. And he said, son, I can help you with that. If you pay me this amount of money, I will get that, um, that ticket down to a more manageable spot so that you don't lose your license, uh, so that you don't you know, become the... The, the fun of all your friends, but if you do it one more time, okay, if you get that ticket one more time, there's not enough money in the world to get you out of that one. At that point, you will lose your license, and you will be the kid on the bicycle going to work. <laughs> all that to say, church, aren't you glad that's not how God looks at us? You see, God doesn't look at us and go, if you sin one more time, Dave, I'm going to send a lightning bolt on you. See, I'm still picking on myself, okay? God rather shows us mercy and grace. He looks at us and says, My son took all of your sin, all of your wrath, all of the things that was stored up for you because of what you did by choosing to be your own king and rejecting me. Christ Jesus took all of it on himself. And so what does the text say then? Who is to condemn? You almost see the, re- the rhetoric nature of the question that Paul's asking. Who can find any guilt? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Christ Jesus was the one who took on all the sin. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Do not neglect that last part. You see, Christ didn't just die for us on the cross, but he also rose again three days later. In the resurrection, he conquered sin, hell, and the grave. And now we serve a living God. We don't serve a dead God, church. We don't serve a God who we can't know. We don't serve a God who is somewhere, his bones are somewhere in the Middle East buried. We serve a risen Lord. Hebrews 7.25 says that he lives to make intercession for those who are in him. Meaning that Jesus is right now seated at the right hand of God and he lives to make intercession for us. So that when we mess up, when we screw up, he's saying, God, Father, all that was put on on me. Remember that. They're forgiven. They stand free. They stand redeemed. And also, he lives to make intercession for us earlier in Romans 8. We we skipped all this. Trust me, if if you guys would allow me to be here till 5 o'clock, we could go through all of Romans 8 now. 
But he said earlier that the Spirit himself intercedes with groans too great for words, praying for us, making intercession for us. This is how great a God we serve. You see, he doesn't just leave us to live this life and say, okay, live the best way you can now. No, he says, I'm going to walk with you. We serve Emmanuel, God with us, meaning he will, never de- he will never leave us. He will never desert us. And this is a joy to the Christian life, that Christ is for us. Some of you need to hold tight to that promise because you feel as if God is somehow mad at you. You feel as if there is such a weight that you have to somehow attain, that you somehow have to redeem yourself by your strength. That's not what the scriptures say to do. I was talking to a dear sister earlier this week, and she was talking to me just about her life and some of the choices that she made. And as she looked at her life, she saw how unworthy she was of any of the grace, any of the blessing. And I was about to answer, and she said, shut up. As my wife, she can say that to me. She said, that's the point. The point is you have to feel the weight of your unworthiness to see the majesty and the beauty that is the grace of Christ. Because if you think that you're somehow deserving of the grace, then you've missed the point. You need to see the great weight of your sin so that you can stand and look and see how beautiful God truly is. The beauty and the majesty that comes in the fact that we no longer stand condemned. That Christ is for us. Lastly, this morning, not only is Christ providing for us, and not only is He justifying us by His love, but He's also loving us right now, moment by moment. Look back with me at the text at verses 35 through 39, and I'll show you where I get this. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Some of my English majors in here. Is that love a past tense? Loved? No, it's a present tense. God is loving us through Christ. And that is a beautiful promise, that we are united in Christ, united by His love, united by what He did for us on the cross. It is an eternal love, a love that will never end, a love that can never be broken, a love that can never be severed. And that is the love that Christ loves us right now, moment by moment, Hour by hour, His love is keeping us in Him. Colossians 1 says He is the image of the, of the invisible God. That He holds all things together by His Word. Church, you are not held together by your own will. You are not held together by your own power. You are held together by the love of Christ. And that love is eternal. In a few weeks, Melanie and I are going to ce- uh, celebrate our uh, third wedding anniversary on March 5th. Steve down here, he married us 
And on that day, my wife gave me a symbol of her love and of my commitment to her. It's my wedding band. Many of you have one in the audience right now. And this band represents to me the love that she has for me. And we promise to love each other until death do us part. Upon that moment, our love will be severed. Our love that is finite in its moment, in its scope, will be broken by death. Look back with me at the text. What can separate us from love of Christ? He says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I'm sure that neither death nor life. See, God's love is infinite in its scope. It will never end. It will never come to an end. Jeremiah says in Lamentations 3, it is new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. We are united by his love. And so that is why Paul can say that death will separate a husband and wife, but nothing on this earth or in the spiritual realms will ever be able to cut you off from Christ. That his death and resurrection was sufficient, and Christ, by that power, is loving us now. He, did this, he didn't just love you on the cross and then say, okay, now do it. No, he's loving you right now. He is helping you. This is a constant love. This is a love that walks with you. When you're in your workplace and you are just stressed out about an assignment, his love is what sustains you. When you're talking to a friend and you go, yeah, I don't know how to answer this question, his love is going to give you the words to speak. His love goes before us and helps us in our journey, helps us to live a life worthy of the gospel of grace that we have been called to. His love is what is able to say in my life that as he has made me his, I am making him mine, as Paul wrote to the church. His love is what moves us. His love is what guards us and unites us, and nothing can separate us from that love. His love is also one that delights over us, You guys ever think about that? That Christ delights in us? Some of you have that image of God as if he's just some cranky old man up in heaven and he doesn't smile at you. No, he does smile at you. There is a relational aspect to God's love. Bo has talked about this at arm's length. And sometimes we need to remember that he is also our father. That he is also the one who is loving us. And nothing, nothing will separate us from that love. Does that truth bring a joy in your life? I'm not talking about just this moment where you're like, amen, yeah, Dave, that's a good point. I'm saying in your everyday life, does that bring forth a joy? Does the fact that Christ is loving me right now, that by his cross, that by his burial, by his resurrection, by the power of the gospel, he is loving me right now, does that bring forth joy in your life? Because it is that joy that sustains us tomorrow morning when you don't want to get up. It is that love that helps us to live a life worthy of the calling that he has called us to live, to go out and share his gospel. For some of you, you are the only Bible that your coworkers will see. How, how do you live around them? Do you partake of the jokes? Is your language different on Sundays and Wednesdays than it is the rest of the week? 
Dave, whoa, now, now you're getting into my life now. I don't like that. This is what the gospel does. I tell our students all the time, we are called to elevate Christ in everything that we do. That when the students are doing their homework, when the students are at their school, when they're talking to their teachers, when they're talking to their friends, their conversations should be one that elevates Christ above all things. That's true for the adults in this room too as well. I see what y'all post on Facebook sometimes. Do you elevate Christ above all things? Is the love that Christ has for you, is that what motivates you? Is that what strengthens you? Is, is that what gets you out of the bed every morning saying that if God is for me, who can be against me? That if God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give us all things in Christ? Does that joy, does that cornerstone of truth motivate you? Do you live that truth out in your everyday life? Do you show compassion to those who need compassion? Do you weep with those who need to be weeped with? Do you rejoice with those who need to be rejoiced with? When those who just need a drink of water or some food, or maybe they just need to be, have a conversation with, do you take time out of your busy life and say, at this moment right now, I'm going to be the hands and feet of Christ because that's what he did for me. As Christ has been to me, so I shall be to others. Again, all of this is hinged on Romans 8.1. Without, without Romans 8.1, verses 31 through 39, or really verses 2 through 39, have no merit. But all of this truth is hinged on Romans 8.1. And because of, because of the fact that Romans 8.1 does exist, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. All the promises, all of the joy, all of the truth exist. In a moment, we're going to have a time of response. And for some of you this morning, you just need to have a heart check and ask, does the gospel spark joy in my life? Does the gospel motivate me to live a life worthy of the calling that he has called me to, which is that as an ambassador of Christ? For, other, for others in this room, maybe you don't know who Jesus is. Maybe you hear everything that we've been talking about this morning, what we've talked about in Sunday school, and you're going, Dave, I don't understand. I'll be down front. There will be others down here as well. And we'll spend all afternoon talking to you about who Christ is because there's nothing greater than that truth right there, that Christ is the one who came to live the life that you couldn't live and die the death that was meant for you. And when you accept that in your heart and, and confess it with your mouth, then Jesus invades your life in a beautiful way. And that is the joy of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you so much for your mercy and grace. Lord, I thank you for the promise of Romans 8. That therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And from that, we have the wellspring of joy that, that is that you are for us, not against us. That you are providing for us. That you are loving us. Lord, I pray, Father, for those in this room right now. That, Lord, maybe they have wandered away from you. Maybe they have, they have moved away from your gospel and they have taken their eyes off you. Lord, help them to place their eyes back on you. Because there is nothing greater than you. 
Lord, help them to see how beautiful the gospel is, the promise of grace, the promise of mercy. Lord, help them to see how you are to them. And Lord, as they turn their eyes and look and live on you, Lord, help them to live their life in a way that honors you. For those in this room that don't know you, Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that today you would showcase your grace and your love and your mercy in a way that they have never seen. And that, Lord, they can either only have a response of saying, I'm going to give my life to you. Lord, I pray for that. Lord, as we sing in just a moment, Jesus paid it all. Lord, let that be the anthem of our church. Because, Lord, you did pay it all for us at Calvary. And so, Lord, let this just be a continuing time of sweet worship to your, to your throne. In Christ's name, amen.